It's after midnight on April 26, 1717. Just off the coast of Wellfleet, Massachusetts, a powerful storm rages in darkness. The winds roar and waves rise and crash. Visibility is virtually impossible. The deadly scene only sporadically lit by flashes of white lightning. Caught in the storm is a struggling ship. Rain strikes like billions of invisible pellets on the deck of the Widder, the behemoth pirate ship of Black Sam Bellamy. Fierce and menacing waves pummel the vessel. This 300-ton titan, stuffed with one of the greatest pirate treasures ever accumulated, is being tossed about like a toy in the stormy waters. It is being driven towards the surf and the jagged rocks beneath. Terrified sailors hold on for dear life to anything they can. Waves crash and roll over the deck, knocking pirates off of their feet. On the forecastle, crews struggle with the rigging. They desperately try to strike the sails. Another huge wave crashes down. Men are washed overboard into a watery abyss. Below deck, a ten-year-old boy, John King, shakes with fear. Not long ago, he happily joined Bellamy's crew, yearning for a life of adventure and freedom. He didn't realize how deadly this he could be. Bellamy is on deck. The helmsman struggles with the wheel, forlornly trying to steer the ship. Flashes of lightning only occasionally reveal the vertical sheets of rock in the distance. The cliffs of Cape Cod. Bellamy knows if he doesn't do something quick, the widow and her crew will be lost. The anchor is their only hope. Bellamy orders it to be dropped. If they can catch the ocean floor, they might yet make it through the night. The anchor plunges into the roiling waters and rockets to the bottom of the ocean. The widow shudders as the iron flukes start to drag along the murky bottom. Bellamy waits for the hefty chain to pull tight. Another crack of lightning illuminates the menacing sky and the giant wave about to come down on them. Bellamy shouts. Hold on, then! I'm Tom Morton. Welcome to Real Pirates, the show that dives deep into the true story behind the world's most notorious buccaneers. Join us as we sail under the black flag alongside such legendary figures as Blackbeard, Henry Morgan, Charles Vane, Anne Bonny, and Mary Reed. We'll reveal how these marauding mariners rose to dominate the seven seas, the terror tactics they employed to overpower their prey, and what life was really like aboard their ships. Their reputations have swollen to legendary proportions, making it hard to separate fact from fiction. Who were they? Terrorists or freedom fighters? Cold-blooded killers or heroic underdogs? As it turns out, the truth is far stranger than fiction. Got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. 
So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. Plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at fanduel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. It's January 1716. It's a chilly, windy morning. The frigid waters of the Atlantic are choppy, but manageable for the Periagua, a large dugout canoe. Inside, an unlikely pair of sailors stand apart from their crew, who steadily, rhythmically pull the oars. Samuel Bellamy is strong, lean and weathered. His calloused fingers expertly handle the rigging. A tough exterior disguises Bellamy's youth. Still in his twenties, he's been at sea for the best part of ten years, a veteran of transatlantic trade routes and the war with Spain. He knows how to handle himself, as well as his vessel. Alongside him is Paulsgrave Williams. His friend and partner is a different sort of man, a silversmith from a good family on Rhode Island. His rosy cheeks are stung with salt spray and he pulls his frock coat tight about him to keep out the cold. They sail south from Cape Cod towards the warmer climate of the Florida coast. On the hunt for treasure. Last summer, in July 1715, the transatlantic world was shocked by a seismic event. An entire Spanish treasure fleet sank in a hurricane. Now its vast treasure is still washing up on shore. Sam Bellamy can't help but smile the closer he gets. He is determined to change his fortunes for good. What he doesn't know is that he is on the precipice of becoming a legend of the golden age of piracy. Little is known about Bellamy's past, though it's been suggested he comes from a poor family in Devon, in the rural southwest of England. Colin Woodard is a journalist and author of The Republic of Pirates. Many of these pirates, we don't know a ton about them before they enter piracy. If you were an ordinary person, not a wealthy person, you often had an extremely low profile for history. You didn't leave much of a trace of yourself in documents unless you had a will or got into legal trouble. Bellamy appears to have been an ordinary person, a commoner, and so we don't know a lot about him. However, researchers have gone back and there's a pretty good case made for a Sam Bellamy uh, born in the Dartmoors in Western England who fits the right age and the right location, the right timing, and disappears from the records that might well be our Sam Bellamy. If it's that person, then they were born in a place that was extremely distressed. This particular town where it appears Sam Bellamy could have been from was in a place with a lousy climate near the moors. There's descriptions of this village of the place being infamous for the sheep having diseases and dying. So it seemed like it was very much a struggling place, the kind of place you might be trying to escape from. 
but a lot of people, young people leaving the countryside in desperate poverty, fell into signing contracts to man the merchant ships and sort of fell into it that way. And Sam Bellamy may well have been such a person, a young person leaving a small struggling settlement and making their way to one of the port towns and becoming, you know, a sailor by happenstance, accident, or misplaced sense of romance and adventure. Whatever happened, he apparently showed up in New England and in Cape Cod. It seems around 1715, after a decade at sea, a 20-something Bellamy washes up in East Ham, Massachusetts. Like many post-war sailors, he's out of work, down on his luck, and frequenting the local taverns. Not quite what he imagined when he set off as a boy all those years ago. Rebecca Simon is a historian and author of Why We Love Pirates. He was born in Devon to poor farmers, and he struck out very young as a child, actually, and went on to a merchant ship and actually became involved when the War of Spanish Succession broke out when he was only about 13 years old. So he pretty much spent his entire life at sea, and he likely had these ambitions to not grow up poor. His life to this point has been one of poverty and hardship, but his decisions in the next few months will propel Bellamy into the history books as one of the most successful pirates of all time. So we think of Samuel Bellamy as one of the great pirates of the golden age for two primary reasons. One is because he amassed the largest fortune of anyone in the golden age of piracy, possibly going into the billions of dollars. Two is this idea that he was the Robin Hood of the sea, kind of taking from the rich, giving back to the poor. You see, the legend of Samuel Bellamy is cloaked in mystery and speculation. It can be hard to separate the man from the myth. Many of those early myths rise out of the coastal communities of Cape Cod. And the story goes, Bellamy's path to piracy really started with his love for a woman. It's a warm spring night in 1715 in East Ham, Massachusetts. The mild sea air is carried in through the open windows of a quiet, rural tavern. Inside, farm laborers, dog hands and fishermen all sit talking and drinking at their tables. One group listens incredulously as an old mariner recounts an incredible tale of a long voyage to some exotic, far-flung land. At another table, an argument breaks out over a game of dice. Sat on his own, Samuel Bellamy takes a long drink from his pewter mug. As he polishes off the amber-colored ale, his bright eyes lock with those of a pretty young woman serving tables. She blushes and looks away from the rough but handsome sailor. So the legend has it that he met a young woman whose name was either Mary or Mariah Hallett when she was only 16 years old. So according to the legend, that night they had an affair and he wanted to marry her. The family absolutely refused. They were a well-to-do family. He was just simply a poor sailor. But Bellamy is not a man who is easily dissuaded. So he decides, you know what, I'm going to leave and I'm going to make my fortune and I'm going to come back in about a year to prove that I am worthy of you.
It's September 1715. Mary stands on the dock with tears in her eyes. She watches Bellamy and his partner Paulsgrave Williams cast off in their small boat. He promises to come back for her as soon as he has made a success of himself. What Bellamy doesn't know is that Mary is pregnant. She became pregnant just from this one night that they had together. And then the legend has it that her neighbors found her in a barn with a dead newborn infant in her arms, her own dead newborn infant. Now from here, the legend kind of gets a bit murky and she kind of spends the rest of her life sort of as a hermit who walks up and down the Atlantic coast in Easton. She becomes known as this sea witch of Billingsgate and people kind of referred to her as a witch because it's said that she conjures up storms in revenge to anyone who might have taken a sailor away. When Bellamy does eventually return to East Ham in 1717, it will be in the clutches of a raging storm. A spooky coincidence, perhaps. It's all part and parcel of the Bellamy folklore that would quickly emerge. In my opinion, this legend really came about as a way to kind of create this historical significance between Samuel Bellamy and Eastham. These types of stories of the widow who just wanders the coast up and down, waiting for her long lost husband, these are very, very common in New England maritime communities. It all kind of fits to create this very perfect oral history and legend. The Sea Witch of Billingsgate may simply be the stuff of local legend, but as with many great stories, at the heart of it, there's often a grain of truth. Local wills and vital records show that there really was a Mary Hallett, who would have been in her early 20s, and that her sister and brother-in-law owned a tavern locally in Eastham, and that she very well could have been working in 1715 at such a tavern. And if you look at her will, she died childless, never having married in her 60s. So does it prove anything? No, but that's quite a coincidence that such a person appears to have existed with biographical elements. Her family was relatively well off in the area. It certainly seems plausible that something about that story could have been true. Just like Bellamy's past, even his famous pirate name, Black Sam, appears to be clouded in mystery. The nickname Black Sam Bellamy seems to have come later. You don't see it in contemporary documents. And it's always said in the pirate culture, you know, myth-making universe, that it's because of his dark hair and beard. But it's also suggesting and alluding to the black flag and the fact that he's a blackguard or a, you know, a brigand. But I suspect it probably comes out of Cape Cod folklore describing him such. The myths and stories around Bellamy don't just come from the coastal communities who interacted with these pirates of the Golden Age. Like many of the legendary figures of this period, our best historical source document also happens to be the cause of much confusion. Published in 1724, The General History of Pirates by one Captain Charles Johnson was an instant success and bestseller. Eric J. Dolan is author of Black Flags, Blue Waters, the epic history of America's most notorious pirates. 
When looking at the general history of pirates and Charles Johnson's famous books had multiple editions afterwards and has become a fount of truth and folklore and legend and myth about pirates in subsequent centuries, you have to be very selective because there are clearly things in there that were total baloney. But it was also equally clear that the person who wrote it read the trial transcripts, had read a lot of newspaper accounts, very likely had spoken to people who had formerly been pirates, and a lot of his information is corroborated by other contemporary information. One of the big aspects of Samuel Bellamy's fame is this idea that he was kind of like a Robin Hood of the seas. Captain Charles Johnson very much takes on this Robin Hood-esque type of story. And he very much paints Bellamy as a Robin Hood type of figure. This book that came out in 1724 when some of the pirates were still alive and set the narrative of the myth, as it were, of the pirates. What we do know about Bellamy is that soon after leaving East Ham, Massachusetts, he quickly rises up to become perhaps the most powerful pirate captain in the Americas. Bellamy was a notorious and highly successful pirate, one of the few in this generation who successfully traded all the way up to having a frigate strength flagship. And that meant that the Royal Navy had to flee from his fleet rather than pursue it. So that made him one of the terrifying, dangerous class of pirates. Much of Bellamy's past is made murky by hundreds of years of myth-making. Whether Bellamy became a pirate out of a desire to prove his love and worth will never be known. But what is certain is the man who launches Bellamy's career is the same man who sails with him to Florida now, Paul's Grave Williams. Bellamy's partner comes from a highborn family on Rhode Island, but one with a taste for criminal enterprise. They even have connections with legendary privateer and pirate Captain Kidd. Palsgrave Williams wasn't like Bellamy, a penniless sailor, quite the opposite. His father was the attorney general of the colony of Rhode Island, and his mother was descended from the Plantagenet kings of England. However, when Williams was 11 or 12, his father died. His mother eventually remarried into a family of people who had been involved in Scots uprisings and had been imprisoned and sent as essentially slaves to the iron mines and forests of early New England. And a number of them were involved in all kinds of illicit activities. They were sort of like an organized crime family, a very well-connected and high-status one. Within this family, there were people who had interacted and been money launderers for Captain Kidd not that much earlier, including some of William's aunts and uncles. So if Williams had access to capital and connections and how to move goods, and Bellamy knew how to handle vessels and ships, they may have connected then, because together they show up down, all the way down in Florida, Sometime in January 1716, Bellamy and Williams, now both tanned and weathered after months at sea, finally arrive off the Florida coast, ready to claim their fortunes. The canoe glides through the crystal clear waters. They both peer gleefully over the side. Down there, somewhere 30 feet below, shrouded in darkness, lie the broken hulls and scattered riches the Nuestra Señora de la Regla and the San Roman. These two vessels alone went down with over five million pesos in gold and silver, 
not to mention the pearls, emeralds, and Lord knows what other precious treasure. The flotilla of vessels is congregating nearby. We approach cautiously. Half a dozen English sloops huddling together for protection. A loose alliance of wreckers come to fish the fleet's remains. Perhaps working in teams with other crews, they take turns making the dangerous dives. Clutching an iron chain or cannonball, they plunge deep down below. Their lungs burning, they desperately scrabble on the seabed for signs of buried chests, straining in the darkness for glints of precious metal hidden in the sand. After a few weeks of dangerous, exhausting labor, they accept the inevitable. The heaps of Spanish treasure they hope to find are mostly gone. On January 22nd, Williams and Bellamy are frankly relieved when Spanish reinforcements arrive and force the scavengers to flee. If Bellamy is here for love, does Mary Hallett come to mind? And his promise to return to her as a wealthy man? In any case, he is determined. He knows there are other ways to get rich, even for a poor farm boy from Devon. After years suffering at the hands of landlords, merchant captains, and navy officers, he lost any love for his country or notion of duty long ago. He will happily make his fortune as a free agent, taking from the rich. Bellamy and Williams decide to raise the black flag and join the growing ranks of pirates in the Caribbean. The world of the English and British Empire's commerce at that time period, there'd never been a internal piracy threat like this. I call it domestic piracy, I suppose. It wasn't that it's a time of war and enemy privateers are attacking your shipping. It's that there's this rebellious outbreak of brigands and rogues, and from the pirates' perspectives, people fighting revolution to sort of overturn the system and mess with their oppressors. All this was going on and threatening commerce and causing warships to have to hide in port and making it impossible to count on a vessel leaving the Americas and arriving back in Europe. I mean, it was really destabilizing, unprecedented for peacetime. Late March, 1716. Bellamy knows pirating in Spanish territory is an ideal hunting ground. It's like plucking low-hanging fruit with a quick escape to the Bahamas where he can make port to hawk the raided goods. It's dusk on the Cuban coast. The still Caribbean waters sparkle orange and yellow. Bellamy's piratical enterprise is growing. He and Williams now possess two periaguas and a crew of loyal and equally determined mariners. Now, cutting through the waters, Bellamy and Williams approach three Jamaican sloops of war anchored off of Baya Honda. Earlier that day, Bellamy was chased off by these same sloops as his crew raided a British merchant ship. Bellamy feels something is off. The Jamaican sloops, which he presumes to be royal privateers, themselves then commandeered the British merchant. He suspects these Jamaicans, despite flying British colors and colonial insignia, might be more pirate than privateer. And Bellamy is right. The sloops are captained by Henry Jennings. As we saw in episode three, at this moment, Jennings eyes up a large French frigate rigged ship 
sitting in the bay. He wants it, but he needs manpower to claim it. Bellamy's arrival provides an opportune moment for both captains. After a friendly conversation between Bellamy and Jennings, they agree to an alliance and successfully raid the French vessel. The operation is a masterclass in psychological warfare. The pirates raid the ship stark naked and shouting like madmen. Unsurprisingly, the terrified Frenchmen surrender immediately. Bellamy learns an important lesson, that fear is the most effective tool in a pirate's arsenal. This was like an early example of the tactics that the pirates would later use to great effect with larger vessels. They were operating in a very swift and maneuverable vessel that was able to do a lightning strike. In this case, just dug out sailing canoes. Open canoes, they're paddling at full speed. It's a surprise attack. They're maneuverable. The opponent's at anchor. And they're dressed to look wild and fierce and dangerous, yelling and uh, being very clear that we're taking over your vessel and telegraphing the idea that there's no point in fighting. You know, you might as well surrender. That's kind of the pirate's goal was to be so terrifying and swift that you wouldn't have any resistance. What's interesting about Bellamy is that he's not a violent man. He uses tactics of terror in order to get people to surrender. He's not one who goes in there ready to kill. In fact, he avoids it as much as possible and he kind of orders his men not to kill people as well. And the way this all started was that one day early in their career, while they were sailing with Jennings, they boarded their victim's ship naked, wearing only their weapons. Nobody could believe their eyes. As for Jennings and Bellamy, their alliance is short-lived. Jennings leaves Bellamy with the loot to go chase after another French merchant ship nearby. Bellamy seizes the moment and takes the newly gained treasure of £7,215 and makes off before Jennings can return. Bellamy's Periagua is now loaded with treasure. Williams and the crew are ecstatic with the score. Unlike poorly paid naval officers or privateers who are unable to claim a treasure in full, these pirates take it all for themselves. This makes dividing the shares very different. Dr. Manishag Powell is a cultural historian and an authority on pirates. So to start off with, everybody starting in the Navy and kind of working their way down through the echelons of respectability has some expectation that if they capture a ship, the loot will be divided. The Navy has a prize money system at this point in time. But the difference is like, you know, the size of the chase they get. So the Admiral and the Captain and the officers get a lot more money than, you know, the cabin boy and the common sailors, et cetera, et cetera. So everybody's going to get their salary, their wages paid or augmented through prize money. Regardless of Bellamy's Robin Hood reputation, pirate ships were commonly far more democratic than their law-abiding counterparts. What's different is with the pirates, the division is much more equitable. It's not perfectly equitable. So the captain will get a bigger share, the quartermaster will get a bigger share, but everybody gets like a much more equal share of the spoils. It's been a few days since Bellamy made off with the French loot, when the lookout spots a fleet of ships on the horizon. These ships aren't merchant vessels, nor are they privateers. Bellamy's fortunes are about to change for the better once more. It's a cool spring day off the coast of Western Cuba. 
Bellamy, Williams, and the ragtag crew of baymen, sailors, and indigenous Americans all apply themselves to pulling the oars. They move slowly, their canoes sitting deeper in the water thanks to the weight of treasure stolen from Jennings and the St. Marie. Once again, they approach a larger sloop of war at anchor. This time, however, there's little ambiguity regarding allegiances. The pirate sloop Benjamin is well known and proudly flying Death's banner, the Jolly Roger. They pull alongside, tether their small craft to the pirate ship, and clamber aboard. Bellamy is about to come face to face with the most prominent pirate commander in the Caribbean, Benjamin Hornigold. He also likely clamps eyes for the first time on Blackbeard, Hornigold's partner and a future ally. Bellamy and Williams may well have read about Hornigold's exploits in the Boston newsletter from their days in New England. They may even have been inspired to follow his lead. Certainly, they know of the growing pirate nest on the Bahamas that has flourished under Hornigold's leadership. But what they don't know is that this is the moment that will launch their careers. Hornigold and Bellamy hit it off immediately. He listens with great satisfaction as Bellamy recounts the recent events, the attack on the St. Marie, the betrayal of his old rival, Henry Jennings. Hornigold is impressed with this young pirate. After a quick discussion with his counsel, he invites them to join his crew. Bellamy and Williams need no discussion. They are read the pirate articles that govern the ship and sign on with the Benjamin. But what happens next must not only take Bellamy by surprise, but shocks everyone on board. Hornigold immediately promotes the young Bellamy, giving him command of a captured French sloop, the Marianne. Samuel Bellamy was only in his mid-twenties by the time he really teamed up with Jennings and then Hornigold. And these pirates were veterans. These guys are older, they're really experienced, and they know very, very experienced people, people who they've sailed with for years at this point. So why would, say, Hornigold meet this young pirate and give him a captaincy of a ship almost right away. Well, he probably saw the ambition and the skill that Bellamy possessed. Bellamy was extremely ambitious. He wanted to climb the ranks as fast as he could. He fought in the War of Spanish Succession pretty much as a child. He was very brave. He jumped into it with gusto. And he also kind of had no fear when it came to attacking ships. Coming up with the idea of stripping down naked, that's a wild idea that wouldn't have occurred to anybody else. And these tactics work. And I'm sure Hornigold saw that there was definitely something in Bellamy, some sort of intelligence that wasn't quite matched with other pirates he had met. You have to wonder how the older, more experienced sailors in Hornigold's gang would have felt about this. Did men like Blackbeard feel overlooked? Perhaps he did. Perhaps it lit a fire in him. Because he too will soon break out on his own and rise to eclipse them all. For over two months, captaining the Marianne, Bellamy carries out a number of successful raids under Hornigold's command. The fleet's strength is boosted further after linking up with French pirate, the Buzzard, Olivier Labuse, on his ship, Postillon. After terrorizing Spanish shipping out of the Gulf of Mexico, they plan to turn their attention to the French traders of Hispaniola and the Leeward Islands. Horningold briefly returns to the pirate port on Nassau to trade his aging vessel for a newer model. 
he soon returns in a sturdier, although less powerful, sloop, Adventure. But all is not well in the pirate fleet. Despite their successes, tensions are beginning to form. But quickly it becomes clear that the politics and motivations and goals and ethical codes of these various pirate crews aren't matching up very well. And the central tension is that Hornigold still saw himself as sort of a a vigilante settling scores with the Spanish. So most of his targets were Spanish or maybe even French because they had been the opponents during the War of Spanish Secession. And he didn't want to attack English vessels. He still had some sense of loyalty or patriotism. But that's not how Bellamy and Williams felt. Bellamy makes no secret of his dislike for the British Empire. Perhaps he's just out to get rich, regardless of national ties. Or maybe he is ideologically opposed to royal authority, resentful of the abuses suffered by sailors and the exploitation of the poor. And this points out one of the big key features or characteristics of this particular outbreak of piracy is that they were kind of revolutionary. Their argument was that they were settling the scores against the ship owners and ship captains who'd exploited them. At this point, his motivations are unclear. What is clear is that Bellamy, Williams, Labuse, and most of Hornigold's own crew start to turn on their Commodore, and collectively, they have the power to remove him. The pirate code that governed a ship. If you've got 80 or 100 men on a ship, their only goal in life is to make a big score and get rich. You've got to establish some kind of legal framework or formal framework to keep them all in line. These pirates, by definition, were outcasts from society. So when they went onto a pirate ship, they didn't want to recreate the environment that they had often left and despised. And that's why they had some of these democratic principles. Whispers of mutiny spread like wildfire through the various crews. Hornigold is holding the men back, preventing them from scoring prizes and lining their pockets. The Commodore is failing them. Some rumors are uglier than others. Words like coward and traitor are uttered below deck names of possible successors are soon being discussed. Bellamy clearly was having a very significant amount of influence with the crew, especially as he's really getting the word out and the opinion out that Hornigold is avoiding really great pieces of potential by not attacking British ships. And Bellamy convinces the men that this is an issue. And so they stage a mutiny and they officially take over and they oust Benjamin Hornigold of his captaincy. And then because the men who had already been sailing under Bellamy and the Marianne already knew him, they knew how good of a captain he was, the mutiny was successful, they were more than happy to go ahead and elect Samuel Bellamy to be their captain. It's early July, 1716. Going against Hornigold's orders, Bellamy raids another English ship. Hornigold is furious. He scolds Bellamy on the deck of the Marianne. Hornigold's face is red with anger. Beside him, Edward Thatch, Blackbeard, remains loyal. But it's just the excuse Bellamy needs. The mutiny has begun. In front of the crew, Bellamy challenges Hornigold's command, listing the charges and reciting the acts of the pirate code. 
tensions are at fever pitch, but there's no need for bloodshed. The process of rebellion on board a pirate ship is actually surprisingly simple. There's absolutely no doubt that the quote-unquote pirate society was very different from the society from which these pirates came, which was a hidebound society of hierarchies and aristocrats and merchants and peasants. It was very different. And in a sense, looking at it from our age, it was very refreshing because there was a certain amount of equality on a pirate ship. And that was reflected in the pirate's code. There's no doubt that they could vote in and out their captain, which reflects a sense of democracy. It's night. A silver moon hangs in the sky. Flickering amber lights glow on Hornigold's flotilla as the vessels gently rock in the Caribbean waters. On the adventure, Hornigold's ship, Bellamy's Marianne and Labuse's Poustillon, a vote of no confidence is cast against Hornigold. Despite the successes, the pirates are in this occupation for money and little else. Bellamy's proposal that any ship goes when it comes to raiding makes financial sense. One by one, Hornigold loses support, and Bellamy gains. In total, only 20 men have sided with Hornigold. Hornigold, his face drawn, his knuckles white and visibly shaking with anger, is voted out. At just 27 years old, Samuel Bellamy is elected the new Commodore. Bellamy stands on the deck of the Marianne, Williams his quartermaster beside him. Together, they watch Hornigold and what remains of his crew sail off on the adventure, slipping away into the darkness, headed back to Nassau. It is less than a year since Bellamy left New England. He is captain of a sizable vessel with a crew of 90 hardened pirates. And now he's the commodore of a powerful pirate squadron. With him in command, now any vessel in the Caribbean is fair game. His meteoric rise shows no sign of slowing, and Bellamy has big ideas for what he wants to do next. Next week on Real Pirates, Bellamy flexes his newfound muscle as a pirate commodore, but his ambitions are checked by a fatal tangle with a French frigate. His hopes are dented and his authority is questioned by those who follow him. But he pushes on undeterred, growing his crew and his pirate fleet with men from every corner of the world. Men who'll fight and die for their freedom and for treasure. We delve further into the legend that surrounds Black Sam Bellamy. Who is the man behind the myth? This Robin Hood of the seas, the self-proclaimed Prince of Pirates. Real Pirates is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boirot for Parcast. Produced by McAllister Beckson. Written by Luke Coons and McAllister Beckson. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Sound design by Matias Torres Sole. Mixmaster by Kian Ryan Morgan. Mm-hmm.